Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and thank you for being here. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is your host, Rocky Deer. If you're just tuning in, we have an amazing episode for you today. It's a very compelling story. My guest today is Anthony Graves. Now, Anthony spent 18 and a half years wrongfully convicted behind bars. He has emerged from that entire story as the published author of a book called Infinite Hope. And Anthony's going to tell us not only about his story and what transpired starting in 1992 up until his release in 2010, he's also going to tell us about the process of writing Infinite Hope. It's an amazing story. And as lawyers, there's a lot we can learn from this. So without any further ado, let's get started. Anthony, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. It's an honor to have you on our show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Anthony, I don't remember what I was doing on August 18th, 1992. I think at that time I was probably in the summer after my senior year of high school and I was waiting to go off to college. That for you, however, was a very, very big day. Yeah, it's a day that I will never forget. You know, I had to think about that day for 6,640 days of my life. I was wrongfully convicted and incarcerated about what was I doing that night and why, why have I ended up on death row behind it? I mean, I was at home with my family and now I'm sitting on death row. So I had to think about that night and relive that night over and over and over again because I just could not understand how with my actions that night, being home with my family, ending me up on death row for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about. It, it just blows my mind as I continue to think about it even today. So let's go back to that night, the night of August 18th, 1992, when your life changed forever. The ensuing 18 years, you were incarcerated and then later exonerated. 18 years of your life. I mean, that's basically if your incarceration were a person, it would have grown to the legal age of majority by that point. I mean, that's, that is an entire lifetime for some people. That's a very, very long time. So August 18th, 1992, there was a horrific, horrific murder, an arson that took place. Can you tell us a little bit about the crime for which you were eventually convicted and then exonerated. What exactly happened? Yes, that was a crime that took place in a small town, uh, Somerville, Texas. An entire family had been murdered. There were six people total. There four children under the age of 10. There was a 16-year-old daughter and a 45-year-old grandma. They were shot, stabbed, blundered to death. Gasoline was poured all over their bodies, and the house was burned down. And so imagine a crime of that magnitude in such a small county. There was a lot of outrage and fear. And uh, so, as a matter of fact, the mayor of that county at the time came out and said that whoever had done the crime didn't even deserve a trial. They should be caught and hanged. And that's sort of the way they proceeded with the case because a week later, they had a funeral and a young man showed up with bandages all over his body. And he became a suspect. This young man was the father of one of the children that had been murdered in the uh, fire. And so when the funeral was over, and they Texas Rangers followed him home and asked if they could talk to him, took him to the DPS office, interrogated him over 14 hours. Still today, nobody knows everything that he said. But at the end, 
they asked him to call the name of someone who could have done it with him. They would let him go. He, according to his story, thought he had seen me in a Jeep with some other guys on his way to the DPS office. And when they asked him to call a name, being that he thought he had just seen me previous, he called my name. They asked him to give a story. He gave seven different stories. And within hours, that was a knock on my door. I was taken to the police station, charged with capital murder, sat in jail for two and a half years awaiting trial. And I was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death, just on a lot. Now let's talk for a second about the man with the bandages who had named you to the Texas Rangers. His name was Robert Carter, right? Correct. Did you know Robert Carter during this time? How were you guys acquainted? I mean, tell us about your relationship with him. Yeah, it's so crazy because this young man had married a cousin of mine that I grew up with. And we grew up close. But, you know, just like with any family tree, when you grow up, you spread out. And, you know, but that was still my cousin. So I imagine just during their time that they talked about their family tree. So he knew my name through my cousin. But we never had a personal relationship. As I sit and talk to you now, I talk to you more than I ever had a conversation with him. Uh, it's just strange that he called my name. With, we had no connections other than my cousin that he was married to, and I ended up on death row. He couldn't even tell you my nickname on the streets. He couldn't tell you anything about me, and yet they made him out to be my best friend, and it, that caused me to lose my freedom. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were... You sat in jail for about two years, so you were convicted in 1994 and then sentenced to death row. When, Correct. When you were awaiting trial and when the investigation was taking place, there was, a, there was a district attorney named Charles Sebesta and the lead Texas Ranger on the case, Ray Kaufman. Mm. When you talked to them, when they questioned you about this particular case or your involvement in it, I'm assuming you told them you were innocent, you were able to give them names of people that that could vouch for your whereabouts. What happened with all that? Why would they pinpoint you? Listen, man, I, let's, let's describe who I am at that time. I'm a young black man with not many resources, okay? Another young black man just lied on me and said that I was involved in a crime that drives the highest emotion. It's a recipe for success for a district attorney who wants to just seek a conviction. All you have to do is get someone in there with no resources that looks like me and can pin the case on him. That's exactly what happened with me because there was no reason for them to pursue me the way they did when they had all the evidence that suggested that I was indeed innocent. As a matter of fact, we found out 10 years later that Mr. Carter, who initially uh, lied on me the same night, told him that he lied and that I was innocent. They never diverged that information to us. They just went on and pursued the case and set me in jail for like two and a half years trying to build a case on me out of thin air. So it was just bad judgment. I think it was very intentional because they didn't think anyone would question their integrity around such a high-profile case. That's a big problem for our system. There are not many checks and balances when it comes to our district attorneys and our law enforcement, and at least our citizens and our people vulnerable out here. I was vulnerable to a system that has decided that they wanted to convict me of a crime I didn't commit. Now, eventually, when you went to trial in 1994, can you tell us a little bit about the type of case that the prosecution put on and the type of defense that you put up? Obviously, there was a jury and there was a, there was a jury verdict. And I think most people tend to think that when a case goes to jury, 
At that point, whatever the jury decides must be the correct decision. In your case, that turned out not to be the case. So can you walk us through what happened at the trial stage? Let me, let me take you to the initial voir proceeding, because I think it's okay. very important. Uh, this is when the jury is being questioned about the case. This is, this is when the jury is being questioned to see if they can qualify. To sit they on can the give jury. a fair and impartial verdict. Okay, sure. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, right. But unfortunately, uh, that's not always the case. Anyway, so during voir you know, my attorneys and the state can question each potential juror. They'll come up there, you, you guys know, and they'll examine the jury to see if they're qualified. My attorney would ask each potential jury one question, and at least six to seven out of ten of them, I remember, would have the same response. And that question was, how do you feel about my client, Mr. Gray, sitting in here today? And a lot of them response was, he must have done something, otherwise you wouldn't have him here. They became the jury of my peers. Now, that's something really fundamentally wrong with that, that someone can sit up there and prejudge you before the trial even starts and be still qualified to sit on the jury because we have this rehabilitation of the jury by asking them if he can follow the law. That is so, it, 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 it's so wrong on so many levels. Because this man and these women initially said I had to have done something, and yet they were qualified to sit on my jury. That was a recipe for disaster from day one. Okay, so so, uh, so Anthony, if I could, if I could just, and I don't mean to cut you off, but you raised an interesting question that I think a lot of, specifically lawyers in Texas, would be interested to maybe dive a little bit more deeply into. So it sounds like you're saying. In some parts of the country, they call it voir dire, and here in Texas, we call it voir dire. That the voir dire process is flawed, based on your experience. How do you think we should change it? Since you went through this and you've had time to reflect on it, what should have been done differently, in your view? Number one, I think what should definitely be changed is called the shuffling of the jury. I don't think that you should be allowed to examine certain people and then when those that come up front that don't look like you, you could get the chance to reshuffle the jury and get the ones that look like you to come back up to the front. I think that's just bad. It's bad on so many levels. I think it also goes up against the back promotion. I also feel like in, when it comes to the jury, once we select the jury, a jury has to be better informed with their role, what role they do play in this thing. Because the the more informed they can be, the less likely they are to get caught up in their emotions and render a verdict based on emotions. It happens too many times because jurors are not, they're the most important people in the room, in the courtroom, but the most uninformed. They walk off the street as laborers. They don't know any law. And yet I watch the state as well as defense try to keep things from them, try to manipulate the facts, and all they have to go on is everything that you're throwing out at them. And then so they get an incomplete picture and they come back and they run a verdict that is wrong. And I think that's that, that's in part because we have failed to inform our jury on what their role really is about and how they need to stick to the facts and how to assess the facts. We don't educate our jury. We just send them in there and say, make the best decision. And then we have a court after that that want to uphold their decision knowing they don't know much about the law and how they were manipulated to decide what the facts were. So I think that with the jury, we break down our system when our jury sits up and they're uninformed on a very important case that can cause a man his life. 
that system is it doesn't work. We need to have better informed juries, even if we have to go to juries that have criminal justice backgrounds. But we cannot continue to let people walk off the street and make these important decisions about the fate of a man or woman without being fully informed. It's just it's a recipe for disaster. So, Anthony, you've raised two topics here that I wanted to explore for a second with you. The first is how the jury is informed and knowing their role. In other words, I guess how the court should instruct them on the role that they play in the process. The second issue you raised was about how informed the jury is about the background facts. And according to what you just said, you had both the prosecution and the defense trying to hide things from the jury. So let's start with the first topic. You know, how would you have instructed the jury if you could go back and do it all over again? How should judges and lawyers make sure that jurors are instructed on their role? Oh, man, listen. Once you pick your jury, okay, you don't go in a trial the next thing. Once you pick the jury, this what I think the state and the defense should come together and they get to explain the roles to the jury what their roles really are. Fact. And I think on both sides, they should be very honest with the jury about how to follow the facts. Educate the jury so that when a trial starts, the jury is informed. They know how to follow a case. It's not about the prosecutor getting up there crying and then they all of a sudden render a verdict based on the emotion. We can't do that. If we're talking about real reform, we have to better inform the jury. And I think that comes with at least sitting them out an hour, two hours before a trial even begins, or three hours, a half a day, and educate them on their role, what the facts are, and from both sides, not just one. And a referee needs to be the judge to sit there and educate these people in this case and how to follow this case to reach the best conclusion. We don't do that. What do you wish that the judge had told your jurors about their role? Was there something specific, a sentence or a phrase that should have been used, in your view, to maybe have mitigated what happened in your case? Well, I don't have the magic one sentence uh, that could really capture what I'm trying to explain here. But what I'm saying is is that when you suppress evidence that's very relevant, that can shed light on the case, and a judge grants that, and the jury don't know about that. For example, let me just give an example. So my key alibi witness, who was there to testify for me, had went in front of the grand jury two and a half years prior to testify on my behalf, never wavered about my innocence, never was told that she would ever be indicted on anything. Two and a half years later, the day she was going to testify, the prosecutor jumps up and tells the judge, Judge, I need to put something on record outside the presence of the jury. The judge excused the jury. The prosecutor goes on to say that my alibi witness now has become a, has now become basically a suspect. And that should she testify, it's highly likely she's going to seek an indictment of capital murder against her. Now, she's 22 years old. We're out of town on the change of venue. She has no attorney. My attorney goes and tells her exactly what the prosecutor said. And she jumps up, all this hysterical, runs out the courtroom crying. Okay. So when the jury comes back in, doing closing argument, the prosecutor jumps up and says, well, where's his witness at that said that he said he was with that night? Why is she here to testify? 
The jury did not know that he just threatened her with capital murder should she do testify. Why the jury wasn't made aware of that? Now, the alibi witness you're referring to is Yolanda Mathis. Yes, Am I right? Yes, right. Sir. And I think she was, was she your girlfriend at the time when, when all this took place? Yes, sir. Okay, so Yolanda could have vouched for your whereabouts and where you were on the night of August the 18th, 1992, when this horrific crime took place. And right. when your trial was taking place, when Yolanda was about to take the stand, was that the first time she had been informed that she was a suspect in this case or that she might be potentially yes. indicted? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Very, so, very first time, two and a half years later. So for all the listeners out there that might be wondering about some of the background facts and where you can learn about the cast of characters, there's actually two articles that came out in 2010 in Texas Monthly Magazine. And this particular article was very, very important to Anthony's case. And it actually helped bring to light some of the injustices that were taking place. For those of you that are interested, these articles were written by Pamela Koloff. And the first one was called Innocence Lost. And the second one was called Innocence Found. And it is all about Anthony's story. It goes into the characters. It tells you about Yolanda. It tells you about Charles Sebesta. All of the different people and the roles that they played in leading up to this. So if anybody does want to know more, please pick up those articles. And of course, if you really want to get the scoop, pick up Anthony's book, Infinite Hope. And Anthony, we're going to talk about that here in a second. But what you were alluding to earlier, you said that the jury came back, they never heard from Yolanda Mathis, and then in closing arguments, the prosecutor got up and effectively asked, where is this alibi witness that Mr. Graves keeps referring to? So you were going back to how the prosecution and the defense kept things from the jury. What do you think the defense could have done in that instance? Was there something that the defense should have done or could have done to maybe better inform this jury in your view? Yeah, I think that my defense attorney, number one, had never tried a capital case. I was the mm-hmm. very first capital case that he had tried. Now, he had sat on the case where they plead, that when they plead guilty, but he never tried a capital case. So he made a plethora of errors that, to no fault of his own, he was just inexperienced. But I think definitely that one of the things that he should have done was ask for a hearing on that, which should have stopped the trial and asked for a hearing on this here because this man just sat up there and said that my witness for the first time was going to be charged with capital murder if she testified during the middle of trial. He should have asked for a continuance. He should have asked for a hearing on that. And we should have heard what the evidence were that led them to feel like my witness would now be a suspect. So that was just based on inexperience. I mean, I never bashed my defense attorney because I watched him cry when they wrongfully convicted me. He really believed in my innocence. He was just inexperienced, and he was dealing with a prosecutor who was conning, conniving, and seeking a conviction. But he definitely could have asked to stop the trial and asked for a hearing on that, filed a motion for a hearing on that to find out, in fact, was this credible or not because the prosecutor had been playing so many games with us. But he didn't do that. I think the judge should have notified the jury. Should have been, that should have been something in place for the judge, who is the referee, the neutral party, should have said to the jury, once Mr. Sebastian made that statement, let's correct the record. Ms. Mathis will should have testified, but for Mr. Sebastian, they decided to charge her should she come, so we want the jury to understand that. But he did not. I, for whatever reason, maybe he doesn't have that right. 
But if the judge would have taken control, seeing that, hearing that, knowing that Mr. Sebastian is lying, knowing he's manipulating the truth, the judge should have had the right to say, no, stop, we need to correct the record. He didn't do that. He allowed this injustice to take place. He sat up there in his robe and allowed Mr. Sebastian to play with the facts so loosely that it led to my wrongful conviction. And at trial, did Robert Carter ultimately testify against you, even though even though yes. he barely knew you and, and you guys really had no dealings on the night of August the 18th, 1992? Did he get up and ultimately testify against you? He ultimately testified against me because what we didn't know is that they had brought Mr. Carter back the night before trial. They brought him prepping back him for his testimony, right. For his testimony. Mr. Carter was refusing to testify because he said Mr. Graves is innocent. Innocent. So they said they're going to take a polygraph test of him. They never asked him any questions about Mr. Graves. They asked him about his wife. And then they said, well, you know, you failed the polygraph. So you know there's no statute of limitation on capital murder going after your wife. So that's when Mr. Carter decided, I'll give y'all what y'all want. We didn't know that Mr. Carter was back there refusing to testify on the grounds that I was actually innocent. We found this out 10 years later. So, so this was not disclosed to you or your attorneys that no. on the eve of his trial, Robert Carter had effectively confessed to the prosecution that you had nothing to do with this case and that he was effectively wrongfully accusing you. And come to find out, that was about the umpteenth time he had confessed it. The night that he initially lied, throughout when they had him in jail, and the night before and the morning that he was scheduled to testify during the trial. He was refusing on the grounds that he said, this man is innocent. But, now, Anthony, but, did you ever get a chance to talk to Robert face-to-face and ask him, hey, you know, why are you fingering me for this crime? Did you ever, did you ever get that answer from him? Do we know? Or... It just seems odd for somebody to, to point to somebody they hardly know. Well, let me just say this. It might seem odd, but when, when you're in custody and you're being interrogated by law enforcement who has made up their mind that you're guilty and they're not hearing nothing else, it's very intimidating. So I don't blame anyone for saying what they say in those moments because it's very intimidating. But the fact of the matter is, he did come back and correct the record the same night. And that's the part they didn't want to hear. Now, did I ever talk to him? About, I would say, 10 years later, we were on death row together. And oh. they had put us on the same part. And they had put us in the same red group. And my neighbor had told me, hit on the wall and said, hey, man, I think they got that dude in the red group. I said, what dude? He said, that dude that lied on you. The next morning, we went out to the red group. They brought him out to the red group. And he was out there before me. When I walked through the gate, I walked right up to him. And by the time I got halfway to him, he said, man, I just want to apologize to you and your family for lying on you. And I said to him, I said, man, I don't even want to know why you lied. Because whatever reason you lied, I'd rather for you to tell either my attorney or the press or the state. All I'm going to tell you is this. You and I can't be in the same red group together. Hey, man, I, I forgive you, but that's for me. And that allows me to move forward, but we can't be in the same group. Do you understand that? He said, yeah, I understand that, man. And I know how you feel. I apologize to you. And he walked over to the gate and he told the officer, 
also, I need to get out of this red group because I lied on that man in trial. And I also opened up the door and let him get out. And I never seen him again. And how did you keep your composure? How did, when, now this is something that's not necessarily in any of the articles that we've read. So this is, this is something I, at least for me, I'm learning first time talking to you, which is very, very interesting. So you meet Robert Carter on death row 10 years after you've been wrongfully convicted based on his testimony, testimony Mm -hmm. that it sounds like was perjured testimony was untrue. So you're meeting him in the rec yard. How did you not just, how'd you not deck him? I mean, most of us would have wanted to just take a huge wild swing at him and, and beat him to within an inch of his life. What, what inside of you kept you calm? Well, first of all, let me just correct you and say that it doesn't sound like perjury. It was rule perjury by the Pennsylvania Court of Appeals. In fact, it was perjured testimony. Now, how I kept my cool was at that time, this whole case had become bigger than me. This this definitely had become bigger than me. It wasn't me anymore, and I had already discovered that. The lies, the manipulations, the games that they played to make this man lie on me wasn't really about him. It was about a system that was broken. And I wanted to stay focused on being able to advocate for that in terms of just being upset because they made a man lie on me that they knew was lying. The system should not allow a man to just lie on you who don't know you and you lose your life and your freedom. So it was bigger to me than just rob a car. It was about a system that had failed to protect me when I was in it. Now, in the Texas Monthly article that Pamela Koloff wrote, in the second installment, Innocence Found, there was a point where you were already free, you were out of prison, and Pamela had asked you whether you were feeling bitterness or anger. And I think you said something to the effect of, I won't be bitter and angry unless things don't change. If things don't change, then I'll be bitter and angry. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, I mean, I feel that every day. This is why I get up and I share my story and I try to share my experiences so that we understand the need for this great reform. And I think that's the only way the state of Texas and the United States in general can apologize to me and over a hundred and some other men who's walked off that road free, that you change the system. You make the system more equal for all of us. You know, I understand when we make mistakes. That's fine. We are built to make mistakes. Is that when we don't own them, when we don't admit to them, and we start trying to cover things up, is that when our system starts to fail us. When we make a mistake and we admit it, we can learn from it and make our system better. That's all part of it. But we don't want to do that. Politics is so ingrained in our system that we can't afford to be honest. So we have to cover everything up and just leave the system as it is. And as is, threaten the lives of people like me. Do you think maybe the country has become more aware of those who are wrongfully convicted? Has there been any positive change, do you think, during, during your experience? Social media has made people more aware about injustices in our criminal justice system than ever before, particularly the death penalty. Every morning I get up and I see articles on Facebook about men who have been exonerated, who just now walking out of prison. man just walked out of prison less than two weeks ago that spent 45 years of his life in prison for a crime he did not commit. When he was 26, come out when he was like 79. Okay, these stories are happening every day, and people are becoming more aware of it. So I do feel like things are changing. I, I, I Listen, I take my hat off to Texas for trying to get out in the front of this change. We're making strides around here on paper, but it's on paper right now. It's not in practice. Once we catch up to the paper and start putting it in practice, 
Texas would be miles ahead of everyone else on criminal justice before. So I do see changes. Hey, when I seen young people taking the dispute on gun laws, I said, man, that is hope for a bright future in this country. Look at the young people today. They're not just sitting here letting the politicians tell them what they should think and feel, but they're actually taking action. And that's what's needed to be across this country. We should stand up to injustice just like we stand up to gun violence. And when we do that, I say that, yeah, the system is changing, and I look forward to the future and seeing how these young kids are going to come up and make us all feel that we're all Americans and not just some of us. One of the turning points, and I, I keep going back to Pamela Koloff's article from Texas Monthly, because the first installment of that, Innocence Lost was the name of it, in that very first installment, she was interviewing Charles Sebesta, the DA who had prosecuted you the first time around. And in it, during the interview, he had said something to her to the effect that on the night before his testimony, Robert Carter had effectively admitted to him that he was having doubts about his testimony, that he had wrongfully pointed you out. And when Pamela Koloff had asked him that question, did Robert Carter say this to you? He said something to the effect of, he did tell me that. Yes, he did tell me something like that. That quote from that article is effectively what the federal courts used to grant your writ of habeas corpus and say, yes, you were wrongfully convicted and overturn your conviction. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, I mean, he, he admitted to Geraldo Rivera because his, you know, Geraldo Rivera would have interviewed him. And the thing about a lie is that if you don't remember, there's a change on it. And Charles Sebastian and they remember all the lies they told to convict me. So for the first time, he was honest. When someone asked him, did Mr. Carter ever tell you that Mr. Gray was innocent? He said, yes, he told me that. He said, why did you pursue okay. Mr. Gray? He said, it was my gut feeling that Mr. Gray was involved. He said, so no facts, it was just your gut feeling. Then he went on and explained okay. how he was called his family. So, yeah, he admitted okay, so, it to him. So I guess it sounds like maybe the Koloff article got to the attention of Geraldo Rivera. He then interviewed Charles Sebesta, and then Charles Sebesta on television had admitted that Robert Carter had made that admission to him the night before Robert Carter's testimony. Is that... Yeah, well, he, is that, well let me just, let me correct you, because it yeah, was Geraldo first that came down and interviewed me in 2000. That's uh, 2000, okay. Yeah, so you know, in other words, people have known about this case for a long time. It's just that nobody was moving mm-hmm. until Nicole came on board. And when Nicole came on board, that's when she took it to the next level. She used the information that she gathered to make sure that everybody knew. And that's how it got into my brief in front of the Fifth Circuit. Uh, Let's talk about Nicole. We've not introduced Nicole yet. Let's tell everybody who Nicole is. You're talking about Nicole Caceres, right? The greatest attorney alive, man. The greatest attorney. Well, I hate to, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but I am telling you from breathing today, the greatest attorney alive. Tell us about how you came to know Nicole and how your relationship developed and what she did for you. That's a it's a very interesting story, and we haven't gotten to that yet. And so let's talk about it now. Let's talk about Nicole, and eventually we'll get to Kelly Siegler and that whole cast of characters that eventually got you to where you were able to walk out of prison. Yes, Nicole is my my big sister and my angel because I watched the woman fight for over eight years without any compensation because she believed in justice. That's the oath I thought that every prosecutor and any attorney, I thought you all, everyone took that and took it seriously. But I found out that Nicole 
really believed in those words, the oath that she took. Now, how did you meet Nicole? Let's start there. Let's talk about how you guys came into contact. I met Nicole. Is that Nicole is a journalism professor at the University of St. Thomas. She and her students were attending a wrongful conviction clinic in University of Houston by Professor David Dow, who started the Texas Innocent Network. And David was talking about my case because a uh, freelance reporter had contacted him and said, hey, y'all really need to look into this case. So David was talking about my case and talking about how I was on a fast track for an execution with a lot of investigation needed to be done. And, it, and then he just asked them who would like to look into it. Nicole and her students, they looked at each other. Nobody else raised their hand. And she just raised her hand. And they were excited to look into a case, not because they thought I was innocent. They just wanted to look into the case. So uh, Nicole and her students started looking into my case, started going around and reading about it and finding witnesses to talk to before they even came to me. And after, I think she told me she had been doing this research in my case for two years. Then finally she came down to death row to visit me one day. And uh, when she came, she sat there and she asked me, is there anything you want to tell me? And I remember the first thing I told her, yes, ma'am. First thing I want you to know, I'm not going to sit out here and try to prove to you that I'm innocent. I'm just going to ask you if you will help me with this case. Because if you do your job, you find the evidence, you'll find out that I am innocent. But I didn't want to tell her that, didn't want to try to convince her that I was innocent because there's this notion out here, this stigma that everybody that goes to prison all say they're innocent. And that is just so far from the truth. But it works for politicians. I didn't feel that I could just say that and feel comfortable with it because I didn't want her to say, yeah, right, everybody say they're innocent. So I said, do the work. And she went out and she did the work. And it took eight years. But she went out and she found all the evidence that truly pointed to my actual innocence, man. And I, I ended up walking out of prison because of that great woman. Can you tell us what it was like walking out of incarceration into freedom for the first time? What did that feel like? Wow, man. You know, so <laughs> let me tell you about that day. So I woke up, I'm behind bars, and I'm writing, I'm responding to some questions that Pamela Koloff had written to me regarding an article that she had been writing. And the reason right. why we had did it like that is because the sheriff at the jail had decided that Pamela could not come back and visit me without being on the telephone so that they could hear everything we are talking about. So we were losing our privilege as a media client privilege. So we decided that we would just resort to writing. And I was sitting there writing. She was asking me, she asked me about Kelly Siegel. And I was writing to her. I was saying, yeah, I've heard that she is the type of person that will throw anything on the wall and see if it sticks and this and that. But her reputation, I'm not afraid of it. I'm innocent. She can't change it. And right then, the officer came and knocked on my uh, window because they still had me in solitary confinement. And he told me, put my shirt on, let's go walk down the hall. He was taking me somewhere. And I asked him where he was taking me. He's like, just come on, go with me. And, uh, we ended up walking down the hall, and I got afraid because I'd never been up front before. And I thought maybe my attorneys were here, but he didn't take me that way. So I told him, I said, man, I, I can't go nowhere with you, officer, without my attorneys. Because by then, I learned about Gideon versus Wainwright. And I wasn't mm -hmm. going nowhere with no officer without an attorney. And so when I get up to the, finally get to the front, since in my paranoia, he opened up the door, and I see Nicole there. So Nicole, she stood up, and I could tell she was fighting tears. And in my mind, I was just thinking, well, you know, it's just some more bad news. But 
they're going to kill me or they're going to free me because I was refusing to take any type of a deal. Even just to walk out that day, I told them, you're going to have to feed me in my cell because you're going to kill me or free me. I'm not going to compromise the truth. And so this particular day, she stood up and she told me, she said, hey, Anthony, remember when you told me that God was good? And I said, yes. But, you know, in my mind, I was wondering where was the food because I was hungry. I didn't know what was about to happen. And she told me, she said, well, I just want to let you know that God is good because the state just dismissed all the charges against you. And I was like, what? She said, yes, Miss Siegler dismissed all the charges against you. And she's not, she not dismissing them because evidence got lost or, or witnesses have died. She's dismissing them because she believes in your innocence and she's going to go on national television more and let the whole world know. And all I could do is ask her, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, I've been incarcerated for 18 and a half years and I've been fighting for this day, but I'm still fighting even though the day has arrived. And I didn't know how to put my shield and sword down. And so I asked her, what do I do now? And she said, well, you know, let's put your clothes on and get out of here. By that time, the officer came and said, hey, uh, you want to go get your property? I said, yeah, but I didn't want no property. I was just so discombobulated because I couldn't believe that finally this day is here. This, this day that I dreamed so many dreams about. And if it's not going to be real, how am I going to come back from this? So I was so scared to even believe the information that she had just told me, you know, and that when I walked out in the hallway, it just started to, to dawn on me that, hey, man, it's over. It's over, you know, and so when I got to it, the cell, man, I, they asked me what did I want, and I basically told him I ain't want nothing. I want to get the hell out of here before y'all change our mind. So he said, well, you know, you want your pictures and everything? And, yeah, I took my pictures and my legal work, and just like that, at 45 years old, I went, went, went in when I was 26. And at 45 years old, I was walking out the side door uh, with jail with everything I owned in a little box. From 18 was, and a half years, wrongfully convicted. This was the fall of 2010, right? When you walked out? I walked now, out October 27, 2010. Now, there was, for the benefit of all the listeners who are wondering, we've talked a bit about Kelly Siegler. And Anthony, if you don't mind, I'm going to try to summarize this just to make sure everybody knows. Kelly Siegler, she was appointed the special prosecutor over your case after your writ of habeas corpus was granted at the federal level. So she was supposed to effectively re-prosecute you and in the process of going over all of the boxes of information and going over witness reports, talking to people, she and she and another Texas Ranger had effectively spoken to 60 people in the course of a 30-day period. And at the end of this process, she came to the conclusion, just as Nicole Caceres had, that you were completely innocent. So Kelly, had, yeah. as the prosecutor, had basically said, I'm not going to pursue this case. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, it is because I've spoken with her several times since. I mean, we're friends now. But, uh, yeah, she told me. She said, I came in to re prosecute you and send you back to death row. I went through 25 boxes of evidence, and I didn't see not one thing that connected you to this crime. And then I started going over all the records of the DA, and I started seeing all the things that the prosecutor was doing. And I was like, oh, my God. I just literally started seeing this, how this man was was really just breaking all the rules to convict someone innocent. And she said, but not, I didn't want to stop there. So I went and I, I called in all my investigators one by one. And I asked them, what did they think about this case? She said, Mr. Gray's each investigator said to me, this man is innocent. And she said, that's when I went to the prosecutor and told him we have to dismiss this case because this man is innocent. They together went to the judge and they told the judge, you have to release this man 
he needs to sign this dismissal order because he's innocent. And she was refusing to do so. So they basically had to threaten the judge to go to the media and tell the media that she was refusing to let an innocent man go if she didn't just sign the dismissal order. So reluctantly, she signed the dismissal order, and that's how I eventually walked up out the door. Was life on the outside hard after 18 and a half years? Was it an adjustment, or did you just come back out and pick up right where you left off? No, my man, it was a big adjustment, man. The whole world had changed on me. Technology had changed. More houses been built. Everybody seemed like they was on top of each other. Politics was ingrained. <laughs> I mean, it was just really crazy, man. And uh, But it was exciting because I had fought for my right to be free because that was my right. I hadn't done nothing wrong for them to take it. So it was exciting, but it was scary. I, I went through a lot of emotions, man. I dealt with a lot of things because... Uh, it was just, oh, man, it was just one day where I, I lived outside my body because I could not believe what was happening, even though I fought all this time. And I just lived outside my body and watched myself, how I tried to, or I guess, kind of put myself back out here and be part of a normal society. It was very so, challenging. So, so tell us this. What was the very first thing you ate when you got out of prison? The very first thing I ate, man, I went home with my investigator, Rick Ojeda, and uh, his wife had made a pot roast. <laughs> she was from Russia. <laughs> she made a pot roast. And, she made a uh, Russian pot roast? That's pretty, that, that, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting. It's, it's all, you told me earlier you'd had a kolache for breakfast. So you're having kolaches for breakfast and Russian pot roast for dinner. This is great. You know, but I didn't really eat that much because I couldn't. I was so excited. So let's say I, I was presented with an opportunity to eat roast, but I couldn't. So the next morning is when I really ate, and that was barbecue. We I had a <laughs> uh, interview with a lot of media in Houston. I was in Austin, so we had to drive all the way back to Houston. And the guy, my investigator, like, you want to get something to eat, man? And it was like 11 o'clock. I was like, yeah, man, let me get some barbecue. I haven't had barbecue in 20 years. So we stopped. So you barbecue for breakfast? I, about 10 o'clock. So 11, let's say 11 o'clock, too, yeah? It's like a brunch. It's like a barbecue brunch. And it was good, too, because by the time I got to the interview, I had a barbecue juice all over my shirt. I had to go change my shirt for the media. <laughs> yeah, so it was barbecue that I ate the first time, man. And it was really delicious. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about the book, Infinite Hope. What inspired you to write this? And what are you hoping people take away from the book? Wow, what inspired me to write this? You know, since I've been out, I have, uh, I've done a lot. You know, I've I really put my story out there. Uh, I was the first one to take advantage of the uh, grievance to see where I filed against the prosecutor and had him disbarred. I took advantage of the, the amendment of that law, allowed me to do that. I've been traveling all over the world, educating people about our need for criminal justice reform and telling my story from here to Rome and uh, and other places. And, you know, it just got to the point where every time I would go and do something, someone would come up to me and talk about how inspired they were with my life story. And it just made me feel like, you know, I need to put this between the pages of the book so that, so that many others can read and, and, and hear this story because it's a great story, and it, it speaks to our need to be involved in our criminal justice system. It speaks to our need to reform it, and it just speaks to the need of having hope regardless of your circumstances in life. 
So at that point, I decided that, you know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to write this book because actually I started it while I was on death row, but I put it up because I felt like it, the journey had been completed. I, I wanted to complete the journey by just boring the prosecutor. I'm just going to be honest. And once I just bought the prosecutor, I was like, okay, it's time to write the book because I wanted to show people how when you do good, good, good can come back to you. But when you do bad, now, at some point, it catch up with you. Now, in your book, you've got a poem here called Surviving Death Row. It's, uh, yeah. it's at the very beginning of part three of your book. If you have that available in front of you, would you mind reading us that poem? Uh, it's a pretty well, powerful poem you wrote. You would ask me that, but I, I think it is quite you. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I, I also wrote a poem about a judge. <laughs> but, a poem about a judge? Well, I was just thinking about how this judge sentenced me to death, death like he was going to live forever, you know? We don't become immoral because we believe in the death penalty, you know? It's not that it exempts you because you believe in the death penalty. And so I was just laying there in my, in my uh, bunk one night just thinking. It's like three-something in the morning. So I just started writing these uh, poems. And actually, I wrote the one you're talking about about three o'clock that morning. And then there, there's another one in your book on page 104 called The Judge. You wrote The Judge in 2004. So you can pick. Do you want to read The Judge or do you want to read Prison Life? Let me read. Okay, I'm going to read Prison Life. Yeah, these things in, in Surviving Death Row. Uh, you want me to, to read it, huh? Yeah, read it for us. It says, sit in this six-by-nine cell, living under conditions worse than hell. Locked away from society, simply because a man lied on me. Everyone says, stay positive, but it's a struggle every day. These conditions discourage me. The shit won't go away. I'm not always in the best of moods, especially when I see the bars. I'd rather be lying on the beach, looking at the moon and the stars. Convicted for a crime I didn't commit is a feeling I can't explain. It's the kind of thing that drives a man insane. You're a strong man, is what I often hear. But man, I don't think people really understand my fear. Sitting in the cell 23 hours a day, staring at the things that's making my body decay. I just shake my head when I sit here and think, how the hell did I end up here? This place stinks. Somebody, anybody, get me out of this place. I'm not an animal. I'm part of the human race. But I guess I lie down and try to sleep, because I really haven't gotten any in a week. Don't forget to tell your friends about prison life. This place isn't for me, for men, children, or your wife. So I pray that you never get to see this place. It's not a pretty sight. It doesn't have a face. It's prison life. Yeah, I was just laying in the bed, man, and I was looking at the walls, and I was thinking about my life, and it's like, how did I end up here? I mean, why am I sitting on death row? I mean, I haven't done nothing to nobody. I mean, I'm a good person. How the hell I end up on death row? And then all of a sudden, my pen was in my hand, and, and I started writing. And I'd never written a poem before, so these were my real <laughs> emotions at that time. So you went from being on death row, at that time a convicted felon, to now being a published author and a and a speaker on criminal justice reform. You know, Anthony, I, 
Ladies and gentlemen, the book is Infinite Hope. You really should get your hands on it. It's a powerful piece. And for lawyers in particular, you know, it's it, we need to remind ourselves that as much as the system went wrong, it was a group of lawyers and journalists who all helped to set this ship right as well. So, you know, let's get our hands on, on this book. Let's read it. And as lawyers, let's make sure that we study what happened and try to do what Anthony has asked us to do and see how we can improve our system. Anthony, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Your story is very powerful, and I wish we had all day, wish we had a whole week to talk to you about your thoughts and your experiences, but you've really given us a lot to think about, so thank you so much for being here. For Rocky, I really, really, really appreciate you guys inviting me on the show. Man, it just tells me that God is always good because every day that I get to share my story is a good day. It's a day that's going to help move the needle. It's a day that's going to also save a life. So thank you guys for the platform this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, Anthony, thank you again. I hope you enjoyed what he had to say. It was an amazingly powerful message and just a compelling story. So what's there to learn from this? What can you take away? Well, we're going to find out. I'm going to be joined here in just a few minutes by Patricia McConico and Lowell Brown with the State Bar of Texas. So we're going to take a quick break, and Patricia and Lowell are going to join us. So stay tuned. I'll be back in just a couple of seconds. And ladies and gentlemen, we are back. This is Rocky Deer with Texas Bar Talk the official podcast for the State Bar of Texas, and how appropriate that I have a couple of very, very honored colleagues here with me, both from the State Bar of Texas. We've got Patricia McConico. She should be no stranger to any of you out there who read the Texas Bar Journal. She's a managing editor for the Texas Bar Journal, and Patricia, you do a fantastic job. It's a great publication. And we've got Lowell Brown, Communications Division Director for the State Bar of Texas. They've actually been here in the studio this entire time when we were talking with Anthony. And it was such a powerful story. We had to take a few moments and talk. Patricia, you're actually the one who suggested bringing Anthony on. How did you come to learn about him? And what do you want Texas lawyers to learn from this whole experience? Well, Rocky, I first learned about uh, Anthony Graves when I was actually working at Texas Monthly. And one of my colleagues was Pamela Koloff, who was working on this story. So I have followed it for for many years. Um, and then when I uh, learned that he had a new book out, I thought that this would be a great opportunity for our listeners to hear his story if they had not already heard it before. And as I was reading the book, the one thing that really struck me at the very beginning of the book was the day that he was thrown in jail and he felt like he was innocent and he didn't do anything wrong. And what really struck out at me was that he didn't really think that he needed a lawyer because he assumed that everyone knew that he was innocent because it seemed so absurd to him that he was actually getting thrown in jail for a crime that he knew that he didn't commit. And so to me, that really rung home that, you know, even though you maybe you think you're innocent, you really don't realize the role that a lawyer can play in shaping what happens to you going through the legal process. Well, it's funny because, you know, when we watch shows on TV, these crime shows and, and law shows, the characters, especially the, the police officer characters on these shows, they often kind of throw their arms up and roll their eyes the minute the person playing the suspect says, I want a lawyer. And they say, well, okay, what do they need a lawyer for if they're innocent? That seems to be portrayed in the popular media. And so, Patricia, what you're saying is 
it's a hugely important issue that a lot of people don't realize because they watch TV and they think, why would I need a lawyer if I'm actually innocent? Lowell, do you think media plays a role in this? And how do we as lawyers maybe at least attempt to overcome that? Sure. I think there is uh, an incredible role that lawyers can play uh, individually and through the state bar of Texas. And, and that is through one of the issues of the state bar of Texas is law related education and starting that initiative early uh, in schools. So our state bar law related education department really does stress uh, the role of lawyers in society and why they're so important. And they actually develop curriculum that takes it into schools. So I think the earlier we start it and the more we can spread the word through the media, the more people will be aware of their rights. It's a such a huge issue that I think a lot of us don't often often think about, at least in our daily lives. We get wrapped up in law practice. We don't think about the bigger picture. This book, Infinite Hope, that we heard Anthony talk a bit about, do you think it's a real, and, and Anthony's talk in general, do you think it's a real indictment on our legal system or is there something maybe different at play? I mean, either one of you, what do you guys think is really the takeaway from this? Well, I think one of the reasons we wanted to bring it to our listeners is that although lawyers in the legal system were a part of what went wrong in Anthony's case, ultimately it also shows how the good lawyers who are working and committed to justice and seeing that justice is done can also right wrongs. And uh, it's, it's great to see in this story how there were dedicated lawyers and uh, also journalism students and, and reporters who were pursuing the truth and how the truth did went out. Absolutely. And now, Patricia, when Pamela Koloff was investigating this story and was about to write it, did you get a chance to talk to her behind the scenes and what she was learning as she wrote it? Or did you, did you come to know of it once it was published in Texas Monthly? If I remember correctly, I think she did talk about the story a little bit as she was writing about it, but she didn't give away too much. She was really focused and working on it and crafting her article. She's a very in-depth reporter that really listens to all aspects of things that are going on and and then um, puts together a story that can really be powerful, as we can see. Um, I do remember that once the story came out, it was just one of those stories where we knew that it was important to be out there and that it was hopefully something would result from the article that once it came out. Do you think she was surprised that it played such a pivotal role in ultimately freeing Anthony Graves? I can't speak for her, but I can only think that knowing her and knowing that she likes to seek the truth, that um, I'm sure that that she was um, happy that the truth did finally come out. Very interesting story about the interplay between the legal system and journalism and how the two kind of work together to help right or wrong. Well, Patricia and Lowell, thank you again for being here. I hope you've enjoyed listening to what Patricia and Lowell had to say and for the contributions that they made. They both raised some very important points, but more importantly, you know, these two are rock stars. And if you have not yet, you need to make sure that you come to the State Bar of Texas annual meeting every year. Happens in June. And you don't want to miss it. It's in a different Texas city every year. It's a lot of fun and you meet a lot of folks. And one of my favorite things is to hang out with the State Bar staff. So Patricia Lowell, thank you again. And thank you for listening to the State Bar of Texas podcast. If you like what you heard today, you know where to find us. You can find us at LegalTalkNetwork.com. There's a lot of amazing content up there. You don't want to miss it. Also, remember to please rate us in Apple Podcasts and or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you again. We'll see you next time. 
If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.